0: Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Andrew Sean Greer's 2018 Pulitzer Prize winning novel Less has amassed a legion of fans, among them Anne Patchett, David Sedaris, and Armistead Maupin. The judges declared it a generous book. Musical in its prose and expansive in its structure and range about growing older and the essential nature of love. The same could be said of Greer's five other works of fiction, tales that joust playfully with time, loss, love and family, and with notions of escape and confinement. He speaks with Noel McCarthy about his work and the wisdom to be found in the fabric of a life. The session is supported by Platinum patron Sir James Wallace. We hope you enjoy it. You must get this all the time now,
1: as someone who has written so brilliantly about how wrong this stuff can go.
2: <laughs> I, I, um, I love the laugh that now comes when I'm at a literary festival <laughs> and there's an inter- and I have to explain my book or someone else does, but the truth is actually I, I, I really haven't been to literary festivals until after I won the Pulitzer
1: Prize. <laughs> I was thinking, at least I'm not wearing a cosmonaut's helmet and you're not suffering from food poisoning, yeah, right? That's,
2: yes, yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, it, how much did it change things? I mean, it's in the novel. There is a Pulitzer Prize winning yeah. poet who, who says to Arthur, you do not want to win one of these prizes. And yet you, Andrew Sean Greer, ha- have won one of these prizes for less. It's, it's an irony you wouldn't write. I,
2: I, feel, I feel like it's like a weird, like, I've, I've uh, sacrificed to some awful demon and that everything uh. I wrote in the book comes true <laughs> in some way. I, I you know, there's, there's some talk of Pulitzer Prizes in the book, but for me it was a joke because, like you said, it's a garland undreamed of. I like mm-hmm. the way you put that. Um, it was so funny to me, the idea of someone winning a Pulitzer Prize, that it was a punchline.
1: What happened? How, how do you find out? Is it an email? Is it a phone? Do they come to the door?
2: Well, I, I, got, I got it wrong. In the book, he gets a phone call yes. they don't call you. They don't. I just assumed. I just didn't do further research you on it. You they
1: yeah. ring?
2: What they do is they, they have a, 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 a press conference at a... Uh, restaurant called Michael's in midtown New York City. Mm. And um, then everyone sort of tweets about it. I I was not in New York City at that press conference. I wasn't even aware the Pulitzer Prizes were being announced or anything because I was working at my job in rural Tuscany.
1: Because life is hard with prizes. You work in rural Tuscany?
2: Yeah, yeah, I was director of, this is going to sound very glamorous. I was the director of a writer's residency outside of Florence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and anyone who ever tells you how hard a writer's life is again, can you please keep that line in mind?
2: <laughs> but I think I, you will think twice about it when I tell you what I was doing when I heard uh, the news. It was, it was very, it was late at night for me because um, I had made dinner for the writers and I was also trying to coax um, a, a pug into diapers, because <laughs> it was, uh, it was, it was um, incontinent. It belonged to the Baronessa, who was my boss, and, and Margaret Atwood was coming.
1: <laughs> so the pug needed to be diapered? I thought we
2: can't have any of that anymore. So I ordered special diapers from China that have, have um, uh, suspenders on them, and polka dots, <laughs> and a big flower, and rhinestones on it, because I thought the Baronessa would go for that. <laughs> because I was persuading not just the Pug but the Baronessa that this was going to be great. And she thought it was hilarious, so I was getting the Pug into that and I tucked the Pug into the Baronessa's bed for the evening and went downstairs and a friend showed me his phone that said, say congratulations to Andy on the Pulitzer Prize. There'd been a lot of misinformation over the previous year, so I thought he's gotten something wrong. Yes. And I looked at my phone and there were 100 text messages. <laughs> And, but they were all things like dancing lady, firework, <laughs> taco, you know, it's not very helpful. So they could have
1: been referring to the diapers or the pug. Wow,
2: one. yeah, or just sitting on their phone one after the other. So <laughs> I did call, a, a I called a writer, Michael Chabon, um, mm. who won the Pulitzer Prize because I thought he will know what's happening and he told me.
1: And he told you. Is, is there a before and after? How much has it changed things for you? Because this is not, less is not by a long chalk your first work. There are, there are other beautiful, poignant novels and short stories that came before this.
2: I mean, it changed everything. It was um, the biggest, uh, I guess there's two changes. I'm trying to give you a not phony response to this. Yeah. Um, Uh, The the greatest one that I felt immediately was that I started getting emails from every previous Pulitzer Prize winner um, in America and I had never thought of these as these were superstars to me and they wrote, Donna Tart wrote with a picture of her pug, you know. Donna Tart has a pug. She has a pug. And I sent the picture of our pug in the pajamas (laughs) and then my pug at home in San Francisco and it was all, um, Very touching, I was Mm -hmm. really in tears about it because uh, being embraced by a writer's community, that some writers said like that they'd always embrace me but that I hadn't really realized it or let Mm -hmm. myself feel that way. And that was the other part was inside of me of feeling a kind of confidence. I called uh, another Pulitzer Prize winner, Michael Cunningham, he was Mm -hmm. the second person I called, and then my mom. Um, (laughs) And he said, don't waste any time doubting whether you deserve it because you will eventually end up deciding you deserve it. So just go straight there.
1: <laughs> Good advice from Michael Cunningham. If Conning. you can
2: do it, yeah. It is,
1: uh, all of this is so relevant to Les because Arthur Les is so lovable in so many ways, but one of the things about Arthur Les that is sad, that, that touches the heart, is his, his very vague sense of himself there is something missing in, in inside of him, which is why perhaps the outside validation, the prizes, become so important. Yeah. And the experience you have just been talking about shades shades close to that or has a relationship it, to that? Yeah,
2: it does. And uh, I'm, I think it's true for especially young writers when you're you see it in the, that they're wanting, you know, you want someone to read your things, first of all, and give you feedback just to, to feel like it actually exists in the world. And then you get a little older and you want a book published. And then you want reviews. Mm. And then you want friends to read it and show up at your readings and tell you it's wonderful. And then you want, it's, I'm afraid to say it might never end. Mm. You know. I, and I think a lot of writers mm. that I've talked to who I think of as well-established feel like outsiders. Mm. And you think if you feel like an outsider, then it's, it's all over. I don't know. But I do I did realize I used to be very bad at doing a very American thing which was to try to go to New York, go to writers parties and network. Mm. And I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> That's what that was the best part. I was so crappy at it. I don't have to do it. He is a gift of a
1: character in so many ways. Arthur Less, but but Maybe the best thing about him, I mean, talking about networking and the experience and social events, he's terrible. You know, he he, he has, maybe he's not terrible, but he experiences a great deal of discomfort and sort of absurdity. And that is all part of the delight that is his desperation. He's desperate when we meet him, and that is, that is very interesting. I mean, how, how deliberate a choice was it for you as a writer to make him a desperate man?
2: Well, I, I'd never really written a comedy before. Mm. And I also, I had an argument with a, a, a student of mine who's wonderful, Kyle Miner, um, who would always argue with me in the best way. Mm. And he said, you can't write a book about joy. And I was like, well, there's no rules in writing. I'm sure you can write a book about joy. It's just a, something to overcome. I love this part of these interviews where there's a sort of tea pouring mm. moment. It's very formal. Um, thank you. Uh, You're welcome. Uh, and so I, I thought, and when I thought about this book, I thought I would love to write a book about joy. And the only way to do it, because his, his point was you can't write about joy because where does it go? It's just, you know.
1: There has to be an anvil waiting to yeah, drop. Yeah, so right? I would have
2: to tear everything away from him, have him desperate and hit rock bottom in some way before I could reward him.
1: Mm-hmm. Which is all, which is, which gives is, you something to do. Yeah. which is
2: abusive stuff. behavior on a writer's part, <laughs> I have to say. You wouldn't do that to a real person, but um, yeah, it's the only way to make a narrative uh, in any way.
1: So the book opens with Arthur Les waiting in a, in a hotel foyer, about to miss or about to be late for uh, um, an onstage interview like this one, and, um, in which the author is a lot more famous than he is and also crippled with food poisoning and it goes. he's somehow been prevailed upon to wear a costume because this is a, a sci-fi author and right. he's purloined a cosmonaut's helmet from the bar where he's been drinking the <laughs> night before and, and this is described in excruciating detail, uh, there's a slow motion shambles at a conference in New Mexico day trips and language barriers, there's a, a, a junket to Japan where he's writing about food but somehow manages to eat the same meal for several days, and all of these things are described with a sort of exacting authenticity that makes me wonder what, you know, (laughs) what sort of minds of bitter experience were you excavating (laughs) here?
2: (laughs) Well, you're you're well aware of the weirdness of the onstage interview, that can go badly. Just one, tell me one. <laughs> this one on could one. go. You just poured a glass of gin. That's Let's right. see what happens. Take a big drink. <laughs> Here we go, bottoms mm. up. <laughs> I, I, I would, I mean, what's confusing to anyone who sees that it's, the character is so much like me is that mm. is how many things I have cobbled together from unrelated events and then invented, you know, for my own delight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would sit... I did this for my more serious, poignant books, too. I would sit and think, what is the saddest thing that's ever happened to me? What's the most humiliating thing that's ever happened to me? Which is not funny when you first, and I would sit and think, I bet you got worse, Andy. Let's see how low we can go. Mm. Write down the details of it, and then see if you can give it to a character and make it funnier, you know? And I would, I did that, and I, I, for, some I, ca- I wrote down the notes and I forgot to put them in. They were so humiliating, they just cringes. You know, the kind of thing where you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, what a beautiful day. Oh, but five years ago I said that thing, you know. Those things I tried to all put in. And so I've jammed them together from mm. different events, and then I stole some from friends. You know, after a couple drinks you can say like, what's the most humiliating thing that's, <laughs> that's ever, ever happened, happened to you? And everyone has one. Yeah.
1: The one I didn't think of, it, it's, a, it's a funny confluence of events, reading this and um, a, a New Zealand writer, a very funny New Zealand writer called Madeleine Chapman wrote a piece this week about doing a literary festival event, and no one came. I didn't even know that could happen. I oh. thought you had to go to, somebody had to come to your event.
2: So you you, know, now you're just. You send someone. You're just bringing up other memories of mine. <laughs> It is I the the feeling that I just had now uh, when you're walking onto mm-hmm. a stage and you don't know if anybody's there, and especially in a, with there's a lot of lights on us, we really don't know. I mean, we can hear. Luckily, if, if it's a funny book, you can hear kind of the number of people who think it's funny. Um, but uh, I've certainly walked onto large into large auditoriums. Have you with the ukulele? and it's three people (laughs) and you, the show must go on, you know? So I would sing and play the ukulele and just.
1: Is travelling as a writer a particular kind of experience? I mean Arthur is summed up his sort of position in 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 the hierarchy of things as being a writer who nobody who's ever sat next to him on a plane has heard of, never heard of anything he does. In that one line, there is summed up years, it felt to me, of awkward interactions.
2: Well, because it's, it's strange to be in, in, there's the writing world in which one can be unknown, mm. and then there's the outer world that doesn't care at all yes. about what you do. And they're off, and that's true of, of many fields and professions, but it's, um, you do have to, to be aware of, um, no one's heard of me even now. You know, like, that's okay. Mm. That's how it goes.
1: Mm. And solipsism is a real constant threat, isn't it? Especially in in the high stakes enterprise of actually writing about a writer. I remember Eleanor Catton being interviewed and saying the one thing you'd never find, I think it was after she had won... um, all the prizes for the luminaries but, you know, she said that the one thing you would never find her doing was writing a, a book about a writer.
2: Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> it is, it's forbidden. Like, it really, I remember being specifically told not to do it. And really? I, and I knew writing this book that I shouldn't. Mm. And I briefly was like, well, what if I make him a painter, you know? And I realized then I couldn't, mm. I, couldn't it would, I couldn't mine my own stuff as much. But I also had the freedom in this book that I really thought no one would read it. (laughs) So I didn't, I was shameless, because I didn't think like, well, what will interviewers say to me in Auckland?
1: why did you think nobody would read it? I mean, the story of a marriage, the confessions of Max Tivoli, um, the impossible lives of Greta Wells, all these are beautiful books that had assured you a place, you know, you weren't a Pulitzer Prize winner yet, but you were certainly a respected and, and loved writer. Maybe
2: I was tricking myself because I do my best writing when I think no one will watching. ever read, no one's watching. You know, mm. I think that's true of a lot of art. Um, and I don't know what I'm gonna do now. But um, yes, it was a way to uh, liberate myself and just do exactly what I wanted to do and not, I'd be like, okay, if the worst thing that happens is that I'm on a stage somewhere and someone asks me, how dare you write about a writer, then it, I'm on a stage somewhere, you know? Like, it it was good enough.
1: Yeah. Do you think that has a lot to do, that the choice of subject has a lot to do with the shift into humor? I mean, you write funny, as though you've always been writing humor. But, you know, and, and it's an interesting thing being asked to prepare for this because I went into the story of a marriage with absolutely no idea that my heart was going to be broken, that I was going to be crying on trains publicly, have it, reading your work. I'm sorry, Noah. <laughs> no,
2: you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not at all. I'm so happy to hear that.
1: But did that shift into humor? Um, did it, w- were you even subconsciously maybe thinking this might inoculate you against those charges of? solipsism or self-obsession or self-pity?
2: That, yeah. Well, it was within myself, because I was the critic who was saying, Mm. "Um, this book is too sentimental, it's too solipsistic, you know, it's self-pitying. That was my great critique of the character, because I just didn't, it meant I couldn't um, attach to him, I just didn't Mm. feel bad for his problems, because it was originally not a funny book, it was a very serious book like the others, and I was, it was a failure, you know, I wrote for a year and a half on that serious book and it was, it was. I threw almost all of it away. Why? It was, I didn't care about this guy's huh. troubles, you know, he seemed like he owned real estate in San Francisco, he's fine, you know, <laughs> it was just hard to, I couldn't figure out a way to, to, to forgive him for being sad. Hmm. and. So I decided not to, you know. I decided I could lovingly, you know, ridicule him. Yes. And that, that, was, that was actually a way to, to love the character for me. It was just, it was desperation, you know. Mm-hmm. It, there, and it happened in a single day. I was swimming in San Francisco Bay and it occurred to me that I could just uh, make it a comedy instead and it might solve the problem.
1: And you're generous enough to give that insight to your character as well. I
2: do do that, yeah,
1: because yeah. I thought no one would read it, so I'll, give, I'll copy it. <laughs> and it unlocks so much for him. I mean, that is a gift for Arthur Les because he's a writer and he's blocked. He's sick of his character yeah. as well. He doesn't know where to go. He's also pushing 50 and um, th- this was fascinating to me because you are a writer who comes back to the idea of time and the way time holds us. You know, I thought a lot about Dylan Thomas and the idea of time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. I, you know, that deep sense of the pain and the sort of beauty of, of mortality. But, but, but here it's funny.
2: I mean, I don't, it, I, you're, I remember, probably 15 years ago, being on an airplane, and a woman asked me what I wrote and what my books were like, and I said they're about love and the passage of time. Mm-hmm. I'd written two books, but I, don't, I was totally right. I, like it turned out to be the only thing that interests me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the struggle with this book was that my best friend made me promise it would be uh, in the present day that I wouldn't waste my time on historical research. <laughs> he thought, mm-hmm. I spent too much time doing that. And so I thought if it's in the present day, it's so hard to do the telescoping that really interests me about seeing people from their youth into their old age and then you're just telling one moment on that line. They're meeting other people who are somewhere else on that line how, and how love changes and how mm-hmm. you look back and think of it differently. That's, I guess, my subject. Mm-hmm. So that's why in the book you also see this telescoping in and out of the, the past to, that, for me, would add the depth I wanted.
1: Because you've done so many different things with time. Max Tivoli is a character who ages backwards. Yeah. Greta Wells gets to live three entirely impossibly different lives. You know, has that been, has that been a joy for you to be able to, to, to run riot imaginatively?
2: It's been great fun, you know? I was, there was, long ago I thought of myself as a science fiction writer. Yes. Um, but I think what I meant by that was that I loved metaphor because mm. that's what science fiction is for me at its best, is it's the, the grand metaphors and thought experiments in mm. a way. And I, I think any novel, a literary novel, is also a thought experiment and, and metaphor and so it felt Fun to try out the same theme from every possible way,
1: and of course, aging for Arthur Less is a specific experience because Arthur Less is is a gay he's a gay man, but he's shocked that anyone would notice that <laughs> would pick up on that. He says as he stands on his porch in a kimono.
2: Yes. <laughs> so he's,
1: how did they know?
2: How did they know I was gay? <laughs> yeah, he's up for a gay award. He's like, how did they know? Yeah.
1: Um, that experience of aging in that particular context, you know, it never stops, the, the, the novel never stops being funny. But that's, that's one of the sort of funniest and saddest sentences in Les, isn't it? You know, he's the only homosexual ever to grow old. Because there's a particular reason that,
2: yeah, yes. it was, that's, that's one that I, is the saddest thing that I've been through probably, that I wrote a funny paragraph about, mm-hmm. which was being 19 and watching friends of mine die of AIDS and watching the whole generation above me. Not the whole, many, many men have made it through who are heroes mm-hmm. to me. Um, but tens of thousands of men who um, died in their 20s, and I didn't get to see that generation turn 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. I've seen some individual men do it, but there wasn't a whole group, and there were no out men really before that. So that was gonna be the generation Mm. that was going to be out and live lives, and we would see what getting old and being out and gay would look like. Because before that, I remember in college, a friend, her mother, who was annoyed at me for some reason, she said, enjoy your youth, Andy. There's nothing sadder than an old queen. Mm. She said with her martini. Um, and I, that stuck with me. I thought, oh crap. Because that was the idea of how to grow old as a gay man. There was gonna be, you were gonna turn into a monster. Like you were gonna be like a, a foolish Truman Capote or a bitter Gorby doll. That was the best, you, those were the best you could hope for. Mm. Um, and so I didn't get to watch some other in be- something else, you know.
1: Is that why the character of Robert is, import- is, is important that he become an older man in the book? He is, he's the Pulitzer Prize winner. He's he is- the
2: Pulitzer Prize winner, the much older ex-lover um, um, of Arthur, who's a famous poet mm. and who leaves his wife for, for Arthur when Arthur is 21, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I loved that idea of of watching someone... Robert ages very gracefully, almost without noticing. You see him at, at the end, fairly old mm. and, and and suffering a little bit, but he, um, he, you know, he crabs about it, but he... But not... he's
1: raging against the dying of the light. Right, really, that's what right? he's
2: doing, but he's yeah. not having... Uh, he, you meet him, I mean, he, Arthur meets him in his 40s and he's not having an Arthur-less crisis. Because... He, I was thinking of men like uh, Frank O'Hara mm. who seemed to forge their own path and it wasn't about watching mm. what other people did, who had that confidence to completely be themselves and make f- mistakes and make great art and maybe hurt some people along the way. And, um, and I, I sort of admire those men, mm. you know.
1: And it's nicely captured that um, tension between being a great artist and, and, and being a nice person.
2: Yeah, <laughs> um, that, I, those, those artists from that generation were like asses, right, for a large part. And that was, it was, it's fun to watch them on the television when you see old interviews, you just can't believe the arrogance of it, mm. um, which would not play, does not play well today, even looking back on those, those mm. writers, but was sure fun to write.
1: But as a culture, we venerate genius don't we? I mean, brilliant men have been getting away with murder for donkey's years. Yeah. There haven't been consequences because of the genius, and it's in here, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. Have you had
1: an urge to behave badly since you've won the Pulitzer Prize, Andrew?
2: (laughs) Weirdly, no. I mean... I behaved badly in obscurity. It's I got it over with. <laughs> I know it was. Oh, this is going to sound so phony, but it was so nice that um, I talked with another Pulitzer Prize winner, Jennifer Egan, who also um, called I'm me. I'm going to see
1: how many Pulitzer Prize winners we can mention before Let the me, end. Of the I know it feels I'm very
2: name dropping, but for. you know, She, yes. uh, she said uh, I had a reading with her in like Milwaukee, which is I don't know the equivalent here, but. Um, the Milwaukee mm. of, of New Zealand. That's a, a funny-sounding town.
1: I was going to say Hamilton, but um, <laughs> people just always do it. Oh, the way you fair. reacted! It sounds yeah. like it is. Yeah, here <laughs> today. <laughs> 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 yes.
2: Milwaukee has great beer. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, she said, uh, "I said, uh, what happens now?" And she said, "Andy, this is your chance to be gracious. Mm. This is the moment when other other writers will fill a barrier between you and them." That will be, is not your fault, but there's some sort of shiny golden thing and they will act weird about it all and you're the only one who can break through and reach out and be normal and gracious and and make it okay for them. They can't do it. Um, And that was a relief and it was, it's true, it actually feels good to be gracious and talk about I mean, I'm gonna be talking about myself right now, but talk about other writers, you yeah. know, and not, not behave badly. I had really good role models for that because um, when I moved to San Francisco, there was a lot of writers who moved to San Francisco from New York because New York was expensive, San Francisco was cheap, which it's not now. But, um, and they were uh, already famous, like Dave Eggers mm. and Michael Chabon and Daniel Handler, who's a children's book writer, Lemony Snicket, they were, um, and they, I, I was there too, so I was their friend. And they behaved with such grace, starting charities, being very humble, always talking to the younger writers and not the famous ones in the room, trying to make it so there was no hierarchy. So that's how I sort of came up. And, um, and so now I'm maybe in a position to, to, to to imitate that.
1: Mm. Have you always, I mean, we talked about writers as outsiders, have you always felt part of a community?
2: I have, yeah, I mean, of course I feel like an outsider because mm-hmm. we spend time alone for a lot, it's weird, um, but I did. That San Francisco community, that was also, um, it was Amy Tan and Armistead Maupin, who is the, yes. the kindest person on earth, um, and uh, Khaled Husseini, all of these were just really good people who would have, like, a dinner party where they would invite... Uh, Amy Tan um, would invite 50 people, and it would be every kind of writer. It mm-hmm. wasn't a, a show-offy thing.
1: You mentioned um, Armistead, Mopan Arthur Les gets criticised for not being a, a good gay writer, for not having enough solidarity with his characters. One of his characters is sort of described as, a, for the, the novel that he became famous for, his early novel, he's sort of a self-hating gay man because he goes back to his wife and yeah. sort of... I wondered, you know, especially in these, these polarized times, I mean, that's the polite word for it, but is there a sense of duty as a writer who is, who is also a gay man to, is there a sense of duty to represent, you know, to, I, I, I don't know how it might manifest, but to do the things that Arthur Less is criticised for not doing?
2: Yeah, I think so. Now, I think the criticism in the book is me, again, mm. talking to myself about, am I doing the right thing for my community? Or is the right thing to write the best novel I can write, mm. is that the right thing for my community? Is it going to be, because then I'm going to reveal flaws and contradictions and the interesting stuff that novels have instead of something that's, that's strong and pure and, and, and fighting yes. the fight.
1: But they can still be inherently a political act. You know, I'm thinking of the story of a marriage, which begins with a woman answering the door to a stranger who tells her an extraordinary story and, you know, it's, it is a novel, just as less as a novel about desperate people. This is a novel about desperate people and what needs to happen in order to live a life that is true to oneself and to get what the heart desires. It's not funny. It's, it's, no. it's, it's very sad. But, they, but, you know, in talking about gay relationships and gay love at a time and setting it in the 1950s at a time when that you know, when there would be absolutely no acceptance of that in any sort of, um, in any meaningful way, that's an inherently
2: political act, isn't it? I, I think so. Mm. I think so. I mean, I, I was writing that book and just doing research and trying to find my way in, and I found myself, I read the newspaper in 1952, the San Francisco Chronicle, for the entire year, and I would just print out on the microfiche old-fashioned machine every time something interested me and a lot of times it was dresses, (laughs) Um, and then it would be stories on the side. It wouldn't be atom bomb stuff. It would be, I realized it was all the stories that I hadn't made it through history to me, all the people who hadn't been included, Mm. and that started to be what the novel was, and whether there would be some solidarity among them, and then also tension and, and breaking apart of people who have no, nowhere to turn. Mm.
1: Um, and Pearlie, your character, she's a woman, you know, what was, what was that like writing from that perspective?
2: It was, it was a joy, and also I thought of it as writing as, as her, mm. um, because I couldn't possibly know what the experience of being a woman is, or being anything mm. other than I am. But I sat for a long, long time, thought about how to create a character not like myself, um, and, and I thought, I just have to do her. I'm gonna do her as well as I can. And if I create a real person on the page, mm. that, um, that honors her.
1: And so much of your writing, reveals, uh, uh, you know, you talk about the research, a, a, a love and a, an understanding of place. You know, that whole Bay area, that San Francisco area is breathed to life in so many of your novels. Is that, is that your place? You know, is that it? Yeah.
2: It's, I'm not from there. You know, mm. I'm from the suburb of Washington DC, a mm-hmm. state called Maryland. And um, I don't think about Maryland, you know, it's a very, Dull place to me, and so I picked San Francisco, which is feels like home. You know, I I struggle with it and love it, and I love the I love the fog and the cold, mm-hmm. um, and I love the sunny days, and I love the crazy people there every day. Someone is in costume for no good reason. <laughs> Some days it's you, and I love that. You know, I just it, I I. I it still amazes me. Its history is really interesting, even though it's brief. But you have probably have the same thing here—that you have only 200 years to work with, or 2, five, 300, mm-hmm. and um, uh, of of the of the Anglo settlers coming, um, and and yet it's rich with you know terrible things happening in the gold rush and all of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still—I see it underneath a city that a lot of people think of as now just Google and and Facebook.
1: There's an incredible scene um at the beginning of the confessions of Max. I say Tivoli or Tivoli. Tivoli. Tivoli, yes, His conception occurs at the moment of dynamiting in in the in the bay, right? Yes. this massive explosion of black rock. Out of the water it happens at the exact moment this character is created, is brought into being, this sort of shuddering bliss <laughs> on the part of his, his father, at least, if not his mother. Do you live with many San Franciscos? you know Do you live with the San Francisco of the past, sort of alongside
2: the I, 21st century? It was writing that book, which is set in San Francisco in the, in, mostly in the 19th century. Um, I got to get so much research that now I can mm. walk around and know what used to be there. I, where I live, there used to be a quarry and there was, um, the, the man who ran the quarry was, was killed by an old, wor- mm. I, like I know all that stuff and so I think about it even mm. while I'm watching things begin to cover up the past, which I don't love. Um, and I know which are the oldest buildings and I know where I'm standing, where there was only water before and that, I, that there are ships underneath that were abandoned by gold miners who took their ships there and just left them in the bay and they just all cemented over it. You know, I love that, like the ghosts.
1: What is it like being there now, you know, at a time when it feels to those of us looking from a distance, like America, is increasingly polarized? You know, this is a sort of a, a progressive bastion yeah. in some ways.
2: It's, it's, it's nice to live there, but it is, it is unpleasant to feel like you don't know What's happening right outside? In fact, after the, that disastrous 2018 election, um, the, um, no, 16, right? God. Mm. When did Trump come to power? Yeah. I'm just erasing it. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I went, <laughs> I, I thought, I don't know what's going on. I have no, I'm completely wrong about something in this country. And I rented uh, a camper van. And traveled for three weeks into the southwest to this isn't in your notes, I know. No. It's um uh and and I made a rule for myself to only go to small towns and to eat at the counter in diners and at the bar and restaurants and talk to people to try to get not about politics, but just hear stories of their lives, because I was like, I am so out of touch. Mm. I'm I have got to at least I can't fix what's happened, but I, I I want to understand it. And yeah. did you? I remember what I came out of at the time was an understanding that people were suffering. And I really wanted to hand out um, birth control because the suffering seemed always to me people who had dreams and then they, they, uh, a child came too early and um, the man left and they were, it all got stopped. So oh. that's
1: predominantly women?
2: predominantly women, there were, there were men who had been given up for adoption and had suffered because of it or had given up children. I met two, I met one man who'd given up a son for adoption, met a son whose father, family had given him up for adoption, you know, it was, those were the stories I kept hearing, was sort of thwarted possibilities of people and I came to believe that people were suffering so much that they were willing to make a choice they knew would cause suffering to other people, either because they felt they couldn't be saved, so they would do anything, or that they actually wanted to cause suffering to other people.
1: Hmm. Is it hard, or or I don't know, do you have any time for writing at the moment? I'm just wondering, you know, is it hard to resist the, Avert engagement with politics and political realities in writing fiction, but I don't know if you had time. It's
2: hard. It, I mean, it's mm. it's it's overwhelming. You're wanting to read. Look, it's been happening so much that I there's new news every day of our ridiculous president doing something some asshole mm. thing that um, uh, I've I've allowed myself not to get caught up in every detail. I think like. Okay, my job is actually, a, I've got a longer game here. I, if I'm working on a novel, my novel is not going to fix what happens today because it changes tomorrow. Mm. So I have to disengage from that. My novel is never going to be precisely about what's happening now anyway because as a novelist, I usually do things through a mirror in the past or in another country, you know, like, so I have found time. I also have my friend Daniel and I go swimming every morning and go in a cafe and put on headphones and work and he's a very um, a good worker. He's got a yellow legal pad and I hear him. He's l- conscientious. Flipping the pages, yeah. So it makes, gives, puts uh, pressure on me to focus as much mm. as he's able to. Mm.
1: Will you keep writing humor, do you think?
2: Yes, I will. Oh good. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's hard in these times but it feels like a good way through something mm. really sad.
1: Mm. your, th- this book gave me a feeling. Um, it wasn't just that it was funny, it gave me that fundamental feeling that life is okay. You know, and I get that from P.G. Woodhouse as well. You know, that sense that you've just inadvertently proposed to Madeline Bassett, you don't know how you managed to do it, you're <laughs> in a sticky spot, but look, it's gonna be okay. You know, was that, was that something that you were aiming for, that particular, you know, Leonard Cohen talks about cheerfulness keeps breaking through, you know, was that the point? It was
2: very much Woodhouse in that sense that, well, you know when you start, part of it is a narrative voice in that you know that your things must turn out okay, you know, because he's talking about it. Um,
1: Well, someone is talking about it. Someone is talking
2: about it, and even though it's in the present tense, so things could go terribly bad, you feel like you're in good hands. You feel like you're with someone who is not cruel, the narrator, who can make fun of things with love. And I think, hopefully, that makes you feel um, confident enough to go on and think things will turn out okay.
1: It's interesting on a, in a technical way, isn't it, how, um, how comedy works. And I imagine you've, have you, uh, did you look at that? You know, Because there's the language on the one hand, and then there's also, so much depends on the withholding or delivering of information.
2: Yeah, I was, I mean, I, I'm not great talking about comedy because I'm, I, I should come up with like a good vocabulary for it. Mm. But I, I, one fun thing that I learned was to, um, if I wrote a metaphor I liked, I could use it again later and it would be funny. So that like in Morocco he's, he notices that there's um, many of the, of, the, of the buildings, there's two doors, a big door and a little door. One's where he's told is for people and the second is the donkey door. Mm. And then many, near the end of it, he says, where is the donkey door out of this? Which, the repetition of it is, is funny because mm. he's sort of misunderstood the metaphor or something and so mm. I, I did that throughout. Mm.
1: Did you enjoy writing it?
2: I really had a good time, <laughs> and that is, as you know, not always true. No. Um, I, 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 and maybe that's what shows, is that I, every choice I made, I was like, well, what is, what's the most fun thing, fun way for it to go for, for me, including the ending, you know, I was like, what do I want, what'll, not what some, some hypothetical reader would mm. want, but what's, what would give me joy to make.
1: And it does come back to those themes of love and time, doesn't it? I read a piece you wrote for a paper in San Francisco, and it was about, it was, about, it was a, just a feature about your favorite book or a treasured book, wasn't it? Can yeah. you tell that story? It, oh,
2: yeah. It was uh, Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City, which I read when I was 18. Um, and uh, I, was dating, I, it was my, I was with my first boyfriend, uh, Miguel Gutierrez, um, and uh, he, I read it through and I, I, um, I gave it, do I have this right? And then I gave it to him? No, he gave, he it, gave it to you. He gave it to me. That's what happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the narrator of your life. <laughs> now I'm going to get this whole story wrong. Now he I've gave thought- it to you and you put it away. That's what it was, because I loaned it to him, he read it, and then he gave it back yeah. to me. And I put it away for years and years, and it was a terrible breakup for me. It was the first lost love. And, um, and, and, I, you know, and he had, never said he loved me, and I felt very unloved, the way you do. And I picked it up years later to read it again, because it's such a wonderful book, and then there I saw in the margin, he had written um, something like, I'm sitting next to you right now, and I wanted to let you know uh, how beautiful you are and how much I love you. Yeah. But, like, why didn't he tell me? <laughs> <laughs> he had to time capsule it and and in Armistead Maupin. But it was sincere because he was somehow mm-hmm. taken by a moment when he was awake mm. and I was asleep um, to write it down. It was, and it clarified things for me. Yeah.
1: Mm. And what I loved about how you, um, how you presented that story in the, in the feature was you talked about how the present can change the past.
2: Yeah, isn't that weird? I, I, I wrote my first novel, The Path of Minor Planets, is a novel about scientists and it talks a lot about that.
1: So they all meet up. Yeah. Every time a comet. Did comment... you read that
2: one too? You couldn't, it's not available <laughs> no. here.
1: Just, the, I, I, I read about it. Okay. I read around it, as we say <laughs> in the trade. Um, they all meet up to um, mark the passing of a comment that one of them has discovered.
2: Right, yes, they, and they meet every seven years. Um, and I was, I'm the son of scientists, so I'm very dorky about that stuff, and quantum theory and, you know, mm. strange changes at a distance or whatever that term is and so i wanted to write about how the how the present can change the past which is through information
0: mm-hmm.
2: and 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 that i was thinking of, about that book and it happens in the novel something very similar to that
1: mm. is that is that one of the great satisfactions of the writing you do of being a novelist that you can do that, you know, that you can transcend time and play with time and telescope time, you know, to have that different relationship with it.
2: Yeah, at least feel in control of it in some way, in a way that I um, don't feel in control, certainly, of what seems to be the forward passage of time. Um, and I, I can't get into any San Francisco state of mind where I'm like, it's all happening at once, you know, let us be at peace with Don
1: it. Draper at the yeah. end of Mad Men.
2: That ain't me. Um, and in fact, my, this was years ago, but my therapist told me, she said, you know, you seem to, to only be, be living in the, in, in the future and in the past. Mm. And I'm like, are other people not doing that? <laughs> Is that wrong? Is that not happening to other people? They're just present-tensing their way through? Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs>
1: Feel about the current vogue for mindfulness and the present being a gift. <laughs> she mentioned that too. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I I can I can breathe through. The only time I feel very present is on an airplane, mm. where I mm. there's nothing I can do now. Yeah. You know, um, that's the only time I'm also not thinking about um, what am I going to eat next because you know it's going the, to You come. know when it yeah you know when it's mm. coming. So it's, I, but I do run into this I, often among my group of friends, of go out drinking at the pub and I know come eight o'clock they'll be like, oh, I haven't eaten anything yet. And I'm like, yeah, I went home and made dinner for us. You know, no, I'm like, it happens every day. You didn't (laughs) think dinner was gonna come? (laughs) Must be nice.
1: Yes. Less is about, I mean, speaking of planes, less is about escape really, You know, yeah. he's, he's circumnavigating the globe on all of these crazy adventures. But, you know, you can't get away from yourself, right? Arthur Les can't get away from himself. Is that, and, and your books are full of characters trying to escape, sometimes trying to escape relationships, trying to escape the, the problems they've created.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. You are like my therapist, aren't you? You're just, I mean, am I, am I at my therapist dreaming I'm in New Zealand and there's going to be a moment? We're only doing a commercial hour, so we're pretty much <laughs> on. He does, I was, I think one of my happiest things that I wrote in there is the, um, uh, is, one of the characters says that Arthur Les is the bravest person I know. Mm-hmm. And then there's a paragraph later explaining that he's so afraid of everything that buying a stick of gum is as frightening as navigating transportation in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. So that in fact, he's really capable of all this crazy anxiety-producing stuff like traveling the world and losing your luggage and that kind of stuff as, because he's as bad as that as he has his things that are easy for normal people. So he's actually sort of does fine, you know, mm. like he's, act, he's, he's, he just has to overcome the same like fear of being at the top of the sea, ski slope. You well, know, speaking
1: when, of our being 20 floors up and locked out of his apartment in Berlin. Yes. Deeply hungover, <laughs> having to get in the window. It's very relatable though, isn't it? You know, this idea of being all oh, at sea in a foreign country where you don't speak the language and things are incomprehensible.
2: I, and I think it's very good for people. You know, it's, it's good for me and I really encourage um, young people I know to go somewhere, especially where it's a foreign language, because I think that's when you realise how wrong you are about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, not just... Uh, the way uh, toilet might flush, mm. uh, or, or, or when the check comes, but like how emotions are, are put together in another language if you're trying to, and to, to be mistaken and understand like everyone here is, is doing perfectly fine, communicating perfectly well, and don't have accents. You're mm-hmm. the one with the accent. Mm. Um, which is why Arthur speaks such terrible German in that chapter because <laughs> I thought it would be funny. Americans always make fun of people speaking English with funny accents and I always think they've learned our language and I wonder what we sound mm. like. Um, te- terrible, yeah.
1: And you travel a lot. I mean, how much of the Italian stuff was real? Have you had any venerated authors? as Colum Tobin or Zadie Smith ever started a fire? in one of those rooms
2: in your retreat? That's a good question. Uh, yes, yes, yes. it? Yes. I'm trying to think Spill? specifically who. I'm sure Zadie tried to. Did she? And that, that chimney doesn't work as I tell them every time. <laughs> I bring them there, I was like, please don't start a fire. There's something wrong with what the What is chimney. this
1: place? Is this just a place <laughs> that, that, it sounds like heaven on earth. It's this Florentine retreat. For brilliant writers.
2: It's well, the, uh, it's a woman, uh, the Baronessa Beatrice Monte Della Corte von Rizzori. You
1: can say that as many times as you like.
2: I have. <laughs> Hello, Baronessa Beatrice Monti della Corte von Rizzori. Um, she um, she had a previous life running a gallery in Milan that was very important and introduced abstract expressionism to southern Europe. And um, then she married a, a, a middle-European novelist, Gregor von Ritzori, and he brought his whole world of writer friends with him and she loved it. And they bought a little casa, as she would call it, not a villa, um, in, in the wilderness in Tuscany. And, and then he died. And I think she missed having the writers around. So she immediately transformed it into this writer's residency where she would invite four writers at a time to come, live with her, have dinner, have lunch and dinner with her, and um, drink as much wine as is provided on the table. And they must buy their own for the rest of it. <laughs> as, Just for
1: the first night?
2: Well, as, as, as she would say to them every time, we cannot provide endless ammunition. It's <laughs> a good way to put it.
1: I think it's the New Zealand writer, Janet Frame, who said that life is hell with prizes. <laughs> and that sounds like one of the prizes.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.